Hey, this is the Ignoramus's Guide to Surviving Humanity, and I'm Ileana Chan, and I have here um, Ahmed Sharan, who is um, doing a PhD in political <laughs> economics, kind of, and econ behavioral economics, um, at least in the Wayne State University in Detroit. Um, so we, we brought him on because we want to discuss that book, The Deficit Myth by Stephanie Kelton. And it was a book that I read and realized I have a lot of ignorance about, um, economics. Um, I definitely need help sort of like trying to figure out just so many terms in that book, like really what she's saying. And also, um, just how, I mean, how does the economy work, basically? That's what I want to figure out, because there's so many dissenting voices. Um, so yeah, so we thought we'd actually talk to someone that was an expert in the field. So we brought on Ahmed, so. Well, thank you very much, Ileana, for having me. First of all, I think it's uh, pretty complex to figure out a solution to the world's economy. <laughs> so sure we'll try our best. <laughs> We'll try our best to understand as much as, you know, and share our thoughts about, you know, how the economy works and, you know, any questions you might have. But, um, I mean, you're not the only person here who's, you know, who thinks they're naive in this field. It's actually a very complex field. And, uh, you know, I, I at times consider myself extremely naive. In it. And even though, like, I have a, an officially, you know, strong background with degrees and you know uh, academic work backgrounds in the field so uh yeah let's just help let's uh, make the best out of it and, and see if we can clarify you know, something clarify yeah absolutely i mean so basically this the deficit myth is a book that sort of uh lays out for the layman i guess uh what mmt is which is monetary modern monetary theory well, in a nutshell, I think it would be considered an unorthodox approach uh, to traditional monetary theory. It's uh, a heterodox um, uh, theory that, you know, um, in a you know, in a nutshell, basically assigns monopoly power to currency. So uh, you have, you know, strong currency here that is, you know, that has. Um, you know, economic leverage, economic flexibility on the part of um, a country's central bank. You know, we're talking, you know, with with respect to the deficit myth book, it's really referring to a few industrialized economies that um, operate in a in a unique way. And uh, the reason why it's considered unorthodox is that, you know, the, the general consensus, the general understanding of economic theory is, you know, the mainstream understanding is, um, one that thinks of you know deficits as somewhat of a negative outcome and surpluses as somewhat of a positive outcome and you have emmt here trying to prove the contrary to this approach using yeah, so you know, the, the the strength of the central bank or you know uh an industrialized economy's currency basically okay so like break this down for us a little bit more because so for me my understanding about MMT is that, like you're saying, it only applies to certain countries. It applies to certain, like, so in layman terms, it it's a, applies to countries that print their own money. Absolutely. So and you have more than just one example. The U.S. is definitely a very big example of, uh, you know, a, a country, a very, like an industrialized economy that has, you know, um, 
a lot of you know uh, economic power. So there's the Federal Reserve in the U.S., which is the United States central bank, and its responsibility is to control money supply. And uh, basically, uh, in times of uh, in times of recessionary periods, the Federal Reserve has the right to just you know print money, stimulate the economy without necessarily having to worry about consequences of um, you know, a devalued currency that has other, you know, uh, inflationary repercussions. So it's, it's, it's very much unique to a certain industrialized economies that are strong, well-established, you know, uh, in the U.S., the military gives it its, uh, you know, its, its standing. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, you have basically, you have an independent um, uh, central bank that has some sovereignty, you know, and, and when it comes to currency. So the U.S. dollar is a an independent currency. Only the central bank in the U.S., which is the Federal Reserve, has the authority, has the right to issue the currency. And so the government, the government here is the issuer of the U.S. dollar, not not any other government, you know, only the only the Federal Reserve, which is you know the U.S. government. So uh, when can, you think of. So when you think of MMT in terms of the U.S., that's just really a description of how their economy works, right? Like, why it why is there pushback on that idea? Because that's literally what happens. Like, you have yeah, that's that's interesting. Well, I mean, it's those are very uh, technical, you know, econ themes that we're discussing. And if we were to assume that, and I'm not saying, okay, let's just, just to make things convenient here, how many, um, how many people are formally educated in any country in the US, let's take the US as an example. How, what's the, you know, the percentage of university degree holders as a, you know, as a percentage of the overall populations, maybe less than 30%. And how many of those have backgrounds in economics? And, you know, how many of the ones with a yeah, background. I'm not, you know, I'm not even talking about those people. I'm talking about the people that go on the media. Like I was listening to an interview with Larry Sum Summers and he's a, one of the economic uh, advisors, I think, of the Obama admin or Bush or and basically he's come up into prominence again because they were thinking of putting him into the Biden admin. Um, but he was basically like his buzzwords are like, it's a cute theory. Um, but it doesn't take into account arithmetic. That's literally a quote from him. He's saying that MMT people don't take into account arithmetic. But according to this book, it's, it's nothing, it's not like the US economy is like a household budget. Like she's trying to say it really isn't at that's, all. Yeah, that's right, it's not. Because we can't expect a government, you know, a government budget is, you know, not treated the same way that a household budget is, you know, we'd like to think, but there's this, that's what I'm saying, like, there's this common, um, I would say rampant, you know, misunderstanding of how, you know, a government, like, what defines a government budget, like, you know, and, and it's, it's an inac inaccurate understanding, because you can't have a government, you know, uh, carry out its finances the same way you and I do as as, as members of a household, right? So uh, when for us, you know, it's like we're we're meant to spend as households. I'm saying we're meant to spend within our needs, right? Or else we're in debt, we're in trouble, and you know there might be negative consequences of that behavior. So we can understand that from a household perspective, but from a government perspective, even though like you still have a 
an overwhelming part of you know the general population that tends to you know favor um, financial conservatism because you know or like limit deficits and maybe like work on you know uh, promoting surpluses but that's not the way that it works because you know deficits are not necessarily a negative outcome that's what I, you know it's it's very important that you know people know the deficits are you know just like a an, it's it's they're economic phenomena you know they're not they're neither negative nor positive really i mean you could argue i mean you could you could still argue that they're positive it's just a, you know you might you might find that running a budget deficit for your economy at a particular period of time works in favor of you know all constituencies within um within a market within an economy so it's very important okay so the, the clear-cut difference is that you know when you're um you know as, as a government and you're issuing currency to stimulate the economy because you know you have certain goals and what are your goals generally your goals are you know focused on creating jobs because you want to achieve full employment right so and you can do that with uh printing currency in the u.s without necessarily having to worry about you know being uh you know being in trouble or like going bankrupt they're saying oh no deficits were once you know, we're going to, you know, reach that bankruptcy point, we're going to be in trouble. And, you know, that's not going to happen because there is, you know, as I said, sufficient economic leverage there uh, that, you know, uh, those central banks of industrialized economies exercise. And uh, yeah, you could use a deficit to stimulate an economy, you're printing your own currency. And so it's debt in your own currency. And so, you kind uh, of, so instead of the household budget, where it's like, you have the money already, and then you take the money and that's how you pay for stuff. The the way the government works, okay, my understanding of it is you decide what you need to buy or pay for or whatever, and then you can print that money. Yeah, you can print that money pretty easily because you know you have you're the central a, bank. Exactly. Exactly. So, and so, so at what point because she the other thing she said was that when there's a deficit, because you're printing the money after you've decided what you're paying for basically the deficit she keeps saying this thing which i confused me a little bit which was basically deficit the money for the deficit goes somewhere it's not like you suddenly have a vacuum she keeps saying like oh absolutely yes yeah, so what break that down for me because i got a little confused by that idea it's like when when they're talking about the deficit Sure. What, so like, what are they referring to? Where is the deficit that they're referring to? Right, right, right. So, uh, I mean, look at it this way. So if we're, if we're, what's a deficit? What's, uh, you know, it's, it's. So it's like a, a deficit from a layman's, like from me who don't, doesn't know anything. Right. Like when I was thinking of deficit, it was like, okay, so I owe someone money. Like if, if $10 is my deficit, uh, that's because I bought something that cost a hundred dollars and I could only pay ninety dollars. So now I have a de deficit of ten dollars. Right. So right? to answer your question, I think that ten dollar uh, example of a deficit is nothing more than a mere contribution to other sectors in the economy. So I mean, when you when you think about it, how do you get to that def? How did you get to that ten dollar deficit? Isn't it a mere difference between uh, you know? Um, what the government you know you know what the government taxes and uh you know the amount that the government spends in the economy and what it can subtract from taxation how did you is like it it's really 
because um, that's, that's the other thing she... that I think the the thing that she's saying is that taxation really is kind of a separate issue. It's almost like like she makes the case that I think it was FDR or Roosevelt. <laughs> I mean, I'm so bad at this, but basically the idea that they understood that if people were taxed on something that they would invest in what they were being taxed on. Like it was a way to shift people's interest into what was being like, if they're being taxed for infrastructure, then suddenly they have some sort of investment in the idea of like infrastructure, you know, like, oh, we're building these roads. But in actual fact, that's not how the governmental budget works. It's not like you take taxes from this person and then you can pay um, for this because she's kind of saying that that's not even that's not necessary at all because you you can just print that money. Sure. Yeah, but I think like she might have given an example of well, first of all, we need to define what a fiscal government uh, what a fiscal um, budget deficit is. It's a I think that those are important terms because fiscal here is you know associated with taxation and spending. So a fiscal um, budget deficit is a mere difference between the amount of money that a government spends in the economy and what it can subtract from taxation. And I feel like that $10 gap, whatever that she was referring to in her book is, uh, is in reference to, you know, the, you know, she gave a hypothetical example, but that was reference to uh, the level of deficit in the economy. And like, she was trying to argue that and, and say that it is money spent on other aspects and it's not money taken away from households. It's money. It's, it's, it's money that is being spent and invested in um, other parts of the economy. And so like you, when you invest in a deficit, you're not necessarily taking money away from. You're just uh, spending money. So the deficit is really, so really you're saying the deficit, the definition of the deficit in this case is the money you're spent. That's not covered by, by, by taxation. Absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly. And I guess that was the, the point of her book is that what, you know, it's a deficit myth. People consider deficits to be some sort of a financial burden on the economy as a whole. Right. But as she's you know, she's coming with this. She's coming from this unorthodox, you know, heterodox approach saying the contrary that no, you know, benefits are um, a mere uh, tool to control and regulate the economy, maybe stabilize it because your goal as an economy is really to get people to work, you know, so that everyone who's looking for a job, everyone who's willing to work can actually work. So if you have full employment, then you could use, if you have full employment, then, you know, people are happy, they have jobs, you know, the economy is stabilized and you might've you might have referred to uh, deficit policies in order to get to that full employment position. So full employment is really, because we're, we're humans, we're physical units in an economic framework where uh, we're physical units and we're real variables. Those are like pure macro terms that, you know, just <laughs> remembered uh, teaching um, macroeconomics. But um, so, yeah, that's that's basically what it is. You know, you're you're trying to achieve full employment and you're utilizing fiscal and monetary policy in order to achieve uh, the the particular goal that you have in mind, which, you know, for many countries, I guess it's, you know, the prosperity of an economy, you know, lies within uh, the strength of the labor market, right? And uh, unemployment is is a very important um, theme here in, in any economic thinking. So uh, the reason why she called it a deficit myth is that she's trying aggressively and passionately to refute mainstream 
thinking that works against or you know discourages that type of you know mindset you know discourages deficits and she used a very good example when referring to the clinton years when the government was actually operating at a you know um uh, for the first time in a very long time, the U.S. government had a uh, budget surplus for over like four years from the years 1998 until 2001 and 2002. And, um, and what was interesting about that is that, you know, there you had the opposite. You had a surplus. So it was the money, the $10 that was left there circulating in other parts of the economy was actually taken away from them. And people think that surpluses are a positive outcome, but not necessarily. Right. So it all depends. So this notion that, you know, this, you know, yeah. division and um, we like to categorize and, and think right and wrong because it's easier to think right and wrong. But, you know, that's not how you uh, stipulate economic policy because it's, you know, the grayer aspects are a lot more complex. And it's usually it's like you have to find you have to figure out a solution that works best for you as a government, you know, given your period of time. And we have varying periods of time and different circumstances that govern our decision making. And so like this notion that, you know, uh, uh, surpluses are positive while deficits are negative is discredited by her um, deficit myth book. So what happens when there is a surplus? You're saying during the Clinton years, what happened when there was a surplus to the average person? So basically the government, so the, basically the government was uh, richer on the part uh, at the expense of other aspects of the economy, you know, and I'm, I'm just like referring to her perspective here because it's, it's still the, the $10, $100, $90, right? Where right. in this case, yeah, in, in this case, in, in this case, the government received more in taxation than it had, that it had invested, yeah. than it had that spent. That is really terrible in that case because that means that they could have really like there was there was nothing stopping them from actually having all the programs that could have greatly helped America like now for for example like a Medicare for all they could have easily had those systems in place because they had a surplus meaning they were making more money they should have actually gone into a deficit and used that money is remember economics and political science are very much interconnected and intertwined and so to answer your questions i guess we're uh, <laughs> we would need to ask uh you know, the policymakers who were there at the time but yeah no, i mean but I, really I, I, like logically they just didn't have any excuse did they i mean like they're gonna come up with excuses like one of the i think things that they always bring up when they want to they want to say why you can't have medicare for all or whatever even though it actually costs less but say that's one of the reasons you can't have it because future generations are going to have to pay for it. Because if there's a deficit, they're saying that the deficit is going to be paid by future generations. Yes, yes. Not but that. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, but, right. But the general public is likely to take that premise, believe right? That. And, yeah. and, and believe that. Because what and, actually happens with the deficit is they're spending more their than their taxes but it can that can last really forever there's never a point in which there um some imaginary e econ god goes balance the budget completely now you owe me this deficit amount absolutely and if, yeah. they, if the econ god did that they could just print the money absolutely so i guess so yes so, so there there are limits you know as to how far you could you could go in in, in the uh, process of printing money 
but um, you really you want to have near the limit is basically. Oh, absolutely. So the, the goal here is to try and keep the economy in perspective, right? You don't want an inflationary uh, period so kicking in. How because... much would it take to actually? Um, oh, there's. I have two questions about inflation because that confused me too. One is basically what does it actually take to um, actually create inflation? Because that's the other thing that people bring up a lot. They're like, if you have a deficit, you're going to have inflation. Like, no, not necessarily. So what does it no. take to get to inflation? I mean, inflation basically, you know, it, it, you know, it's an overall rise in the price level. So there's, if your demand patterns are extremely aggressive and there's, you know, more, more demand in your economy than um, that can outpace the productive capacity of one's economy, then you will have inevitable inflation. But you know, and that, you know, that's, it's a, it's a good point you said, but when do we get to that point? I mean, you know, this, there is no time frame. there's no set time frame, or and it varies I depending. It. No. Yeah. And there, it varies, you know, from one country to the other, you could have, uh, you know, surpluses, you know, uh, you, you could have period, you know, surpluses could be associated with inflation. Who's, what did you say? Like deficits, people are worried that with a deficit that the future generations are going to have inflationary periods no there's like a few things for the critics of mmt i mean we're specifically talking about the us because you're right mmt doesn't apply to like a country that doesn't print its own money so they yeah. but they these critics are quite clever they usually do bring up countries that don't print their own money like greece they'll be like look what happened to greece we can't let that happen to the us which is like Greece didn't. Yeah, but the U.S. and Greece are separate. You know, so can't. different. Yeah. So that's just like a completely bad faith argument. But the other two that confused me a little was one was about inflation. They're like, if you keep, um, if you have a deficit, if you make the deficit bigger um, by investing in your country, basically, <laughs> is what I'm thinking, is that you're going to at some point have inflation. I don't think that that's going to necessarily. Uh affect the US economy. I mean, I mean, look, if you if you're investing, you're investing in the economy for a reason, right? So you're, uh, you're using this deficit for a reason, you know, you're, you, you are suffering from recessionary pressures, people are not working, and you have the capacity, you know what I mean? Yeah. So like your capacity, your overall capacity is stronger in magnitude than, uh, you know, than, uh, than what is actually taking place, because people are not working. So you want to, you want to utilize that deficit and want to make it work in your favor to where like each and every individual who can work and is willing to work ends up getting that job because there is that productive capacity. So once you go beyond productive capacity, then that, you know, then we could say, well, okay, then we could be confronted with inflationary measures, but you could always work around it and, you know, create additional productivity and, also, and invest in research and development to where there is, you know, you increase your own capacity to produce yeah. as a country. So that's the part that really, like, for example, yeah. just completely makes no sense to me because that criticism from the way that you're explaining it to me about what deficit is, you never, ever have to have a situation where, like, where you're, um, your demand exceeds your supply if you're continually looking to the future and continually investing in your country. Absolutely. Absolutely. So but you have to be investing in the right places. Right. So you can't is, be investing. And what would you say would be a really ridiculous thing to invest in? 
I mean, it would be something that wouldn't create jobs. It wouldn't create products. It wouldn't create opportunities. I would, I would be, I would be eager to invest in real, like real variables, you know, like that are associated. Exactly. Infrastructure, education, education, healthcare, research and development, you know, things that, things that could guarantee you a healthy um, labor for a healthy, um, a healthy market for, you know, um, a long, a long period of time ahead. You know, it's just, it's a long-term way of thinking. So So, uh, which ways do you think, like, you know, sometimes they, I hear a lot of like, oh, this government or that government spent unwisely, you know, like they were very frivolous in their spending. Um, So in those cases, what would you say, what would be the things that they would be spending on that would be considered frivolous or that would be objectively frivolous? Like, are you talking about, are you talking about the U.S. in particular or like in general? I think in general, because I can't really think of anything in the U.S. which would be frivolous um, from what we're talking about. Like, I just see so many issues in the U.S. that can be addressed by spending. I mean, the infrastructure is terrible. So, like, I can definitely see. Yeah, I was having a conversation the other day with a friend from Chicago. And uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, like the, some of the roads are not, they're not, they're not of good quality. And uh, yeah, so, so infrastructure spending, yeah, I, I mean, I can't think of like a, an area where, you know, where you could spend, when you could have wrongful spending, especially. I, like- I can think of one now suddenly, cause I was thinking of the LA budget and how terrible the infrastructure in LA is, the potholes everywhere, et cetera, et cetera, no public transport, et cetera. But then they had, it came out that they had like 56% of their budget was on the police. And so that's was where that what? on the police, the uh-huh. police had 56% of their budget. Um, so in that case, like, oh yeah, you have like military, you, military weapons for your police that's supposed to be community for your community, policing your community. So those things I would say is not the right. I mean, I, you know, that's why defund the police. Yeah. But, I mean, if you- I still don't know. I still, I mean, so morally, I would say don't spend that much on the police. Like there's no reason to have like a million helicopters, but I still don't think that creates inflation. <laughs> like in in terms of an, not like talking about it morally, but just talking about it completely economically, even that doesn't create inflation, right? <laughs> if you just spent more and more on the police, that wouldn't create any inflation. Well, yeah, police officers are employees, right? So it's it's they labor. Pay taxes. You know, they pay taxes and they're contributing to the economy. Um, I mean, if we want to look at it from a humanitarian perspective, maybe investing so much spending on national defense, but even national defense is a huge employer. And uh, so depending on what perspective you want to look at it, you know, from, I guess, you know, I would say I'm, I'm totally against foreign aid, investing like, you know, right. in, increasing the foreign aid budget because what it does it really it i don't think it empowers the recipient countries it just creates more of a political I mean, divide came with strength wise between, between the donor and the recipient yeah and so, we know that it comes with strength there's always some sort of something associated with it it's not just free money oh no it's not definitely not no no it's so not just it's another not. way it, to control yeah, no, and it's uh, very much independent of economic development in the recipient uh, countries. But you know, unfortunately, it's it's been growing exponentially in recent, you know, in in the last decades or so, especially with certain countries. And I don't think it helped, you know, empower those countries, uh, nor make their people 
you know, wealthier per se. I mean, I think really it shouldn't be called foreign aid. It's that's a marketing term, isn't it? Because they're just like pretending to help those countries when really it's got nothing to do with that. But I mean, you could use you could use I mean, you said earlier deficit could be also like another marketing term, you know, right? To mislead to mislead the general public, and I bet you anything if you were to carry out a survey and ask people what they you know they think. Uh, what, what they think the deficit is a positive outcome or a negative outcome. I think the vast majority would probably say negative, right? Definitely. I mean, definitely. <laughs> and also it's used here all the time. Like I'm in London and it's just used here all the time to promote austerity. Like it's used here to cut the budget of the NHS. This is like, yeah. we have yeah. to work. We have to be worried about the deficit. We can't like as a government, et cetera. And it's just like, I we're tell you it's thing. not sustainable. Yes, yeah. they say it's not yeah. sustainable, but from our conversation, it just sounds like. No, there's actually there's there's history anything. there's history to discredit this this idea or belief. I mean, look at the UK's budget right after the Second World War, how it was, um, you know, uh, the the deficit or whatever debt was twice the country's income, and you know, it, clearly it survived for many years after and. Now, yeah, now, because a lot of now programs were were started at that time. A lot of our our sort of social net programs were started at that time, and probably we would say, I think that was the birth of the labor movement. Um, so, so we would UK say is definitely another example. So it's the U.S., not just the U.S. The U.K. has that power too. Canada does. Australia, Japan. Okay, so yeah, so in terms, so basically, you just convinced me that there is no reason that we can't have all the nice things. Basically, we can have infrastructure, we can have healthcare, we can, yeah. we can have education. There's yeah, like no actual reason to not have those I mean, things. Look at, look at, I mean, I think the COVID 19 pandemic has probably worked in favor of uh, Kelton's works because it just goes to prove uh, modern monetary theory. You know, now the government, yes. the, the government, the governments, the governments of such economies felt compelled, felt the pressure to, to spend because of a COVID-19, but really they, they don't necessarily need something as drastic and as catastrophic as a COVID-19 international pandemic to take that route and, uh, you know, you know, pumping the money. You see what I mean? Uh, no, they don't at all. And that's, I think what's confusing is it definitely proves it in terms of where did they suddenly get like, what was the first one? Six trillion dollars? Oh, suddenly they just had that, you know, just handily in their pocket. But um, they still like this past week, they've still come out with the messaging. How are we going to pay for that? You know, they keep saying that over and over again so that the average person is just thinking, you know, how are we going to pay? Well, for yeah, I mean, sure, sure. Because the average person is usually the victim here of, you know, uh, bigger political economic plans. You know, the, the average person does not get to decide their fate, right? Yeah. <laughs> to, a, to an extent, they don't. I mean, it's a, no, I don't think they do. And I think there's, I mean, my personal belief is that there is too much emphasis on how much choice especially looking at the U.S. and living in the U.S. 
there's just so much emphasis on choice when really the average person does not have choice in terms of their healthcare. Like, there's no real choices, just really terrible choices. Um, so, but I mean, let's just say, let's just go by your personal aspirations here. And like, I, I sense that you're very much in favor of investing in real sectors that are of, you know, economic and human value, like education, uh, research and um, healthcare, right? And, you know, let's just say that, you know, you we have your scenario and then what do you think will happen with time? You know, you will have an empowered, you know, population, not just like everywhere, if all countries, and I guess that's not necessarily in political alignment with the overall, you know, set plan for how this world should function. You know, there's, well, yeah. A, yeah, because so, ultimately they don't want empowerment of their people, right? Yeah. I mean, yep. I guess that's, uh, that's I mean, that's a personal opinion. And yeah, that's what I, I mean, that's what I'm seeing is that that their way of controlling the narrative is to say you can't, you know, it's your fault you're poor, for example, it's your fault you don't have health care or whatever. And really, we can't pay for it because life is like that. Life is just sucks. And you, we can't, if we give you health care, then your grandkids will starve to death or something. Like, you know, there's that ridiculous idea that they keep perpetuating. And now I just hear it over and over with the Biden admin. They keep saying that thing of how is he going to pay for it? He just wants to make sure he can pay for it. He just, you know, that's what they were saying over and over again. And so they're making all these cuts to the infrastructure bill, um, to like everything that they're proposing, they're just making it as small as possible. Um, and then when you look at it, like infrastructure, it's like, I think 2.7 trillion was what I heard. The last figure I heard over 10 years is I don't think that's even one year what China is spending on their infrastructure. So it's like, if you're trying to compete with China and they're saying that China is a credible threat to them, that's not you don't that's not how you compete <laughs> you don't compete by spending so much less you know in terms of your investments in your oh, country. absolutely yeah absolutely i mean china definitely has a you know a cutting advantage in this case because first of all it invests uh, heavily in u.s treasury bonds and um and uh, that's what i wanted to uh, that's what i wanted to ask you too that's another thing that i was confused about in the book because she talks about because there is like again for me hearing about uh we would hear like the u.s owes china like 750 trillion dollars or something like that like a huge amount of money um and she was basically like saying it's really not like it because it's all computerized right now it's more like a balance sheet rather no. than actual money, first of all. And also it's, it, it's, I couldn't understand this, but basically it's like a balance sheet which allows China to have credit with the US or something like that. Can you explain that? Yeah, again? I mean, you know, China is a very important uh, trading partner, right? For most countries, including the US. So their Chinese products are ubiquitous, they're everywhere. Um, um, in the world. And, uh, you know, when Chinese products are sold in the U.S., uh, you know, U.S. consumers pay for them and Chinese companies make money. So they have dollars, right? Because the U.S. consumers pay in dollars, right? So now they, now the Chinese companies have dollars that they end up uh, investing in U.S. Treasury. So that's basically, uh, that's like, that's, that's the debt. But it's, it's not necessary, again, but it's not necessarily good or bad for either one party, you know, it depends on 
like it's it could it, it could be both a good thing for the US and and China. And I don't see it as much of a threat because I don't think that the Chinese will withdraw their investments uh anytime from the US's economy because they're every bit as reliant on the US as the US is reliant on them. So it's you know they're two big superpowers, important trading partners. And if um if China were to suddenly withdraw its uh, investments from the U.S. economy, what do you think will happen to the U.S. dollar? It would probably risk losing much of its value, and that's and that could have severe negative consequences for the entire world. I mean, you can only think of the economic shockwaves that such, you know, um, such um, uh, action could, you know, uh, leave. You know, it and China's economy will could be devastated too because who's uh, you know when. You know, you have shockwaves all over, and um, Chinese economies are no longer competitive. You know what sets apart what sets apart China as a you know intensive, heavily export intensive economy. It's you know their products are of you know relatively inexpensive um, you know value. There you know people can have easy, easy access to Chinese products. So you know if that happens, and you know the U.S. you know drops in value significantly they're not going to be as competitive and they're going to sell less and you know in china will be affected in a bad way so um yeah so i i really don't i i really don't get this i think they're both again uh they both economies depend on one another i don't think they work separately you see what i mean so i i don't consider china as a threat I yeah, I, I mean, I don't know why China's considered a threat apart from the fact that like Biden actually said like I think last week that we're not going to not on my watch is China going to overtake the US. And I think it's just purely this idea of um Yeah, I, I remember that statement. Right? It just, it just was that, like but, overtake well, how? What? Like, I, I know I remember like reading and I said like what can you do? What can you do about it? Like it's not it's <laughs> not it's, not your say <laughs> well i guess that's the thing that's where you get into all this like cia stuff <laughs> but, but without that like just like purely on the idea of like how it just didn't make sense to me that the way in which he was going to battle china was just to badmouth china versus to invest in his own country essentially like what we're talking about because that's really the way to beat china would be like heavily invest in your infrastructure education healthcare in your people that's what the chinese are doing right now more so than any other country yeah, yeah. very obviously i mean and look at it in, in a matter of what 30 years the chinese have come a long way yeah and their you know their gdp per capita is growing again exponentially so you just look at you know the facts and the statistics it's incredible so what been. about just sort of the idea of do we have to, I was listening to a podcast recently again with um, Stephanie Kelton and it was this idea of do we always measure, do we have to measure progress of the, the country or the success of the country purely by growth? Like, no, 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 no. By economic growth, you mean? Yeah, economic growth. There's other, I mean, economic growth, it just means, you know, how productive your economy is in terms of gross domestic product, you know, from one year to the other, if, you know, if you're growing, if, you're, if your economy is expanding and there's more production, but that doesn't, you know, 
that doesn't give you any idea about the level, you know, the income, the level of income distribution, you know, uh, social political freedoms in any country. Uh, it just, it's just a mere number, right? So you could have, you could again have, you, know, you could have an, an improving gross domestic product from a nominal perspective, but then does that translate into a better standard of living for, or, you know, overall, you know, better well-being for people in, in the country? No. You have other factors. I mean, there's um, the HDI, Human Development Index, which looks into takes into account literacy rates as well as as well as a life expectancy and you know um, and income levels. And uh, it's just yeah, there's more to look into than just that's like, the other thing that I hear a lot of. It's like, oh well, you don't want your economy economy to slow down. Like China's growth is going to slow down. Uh, Japan's growth has been stagnant for years you know and i just i'm like well how important is that actually like i can't figure it out well there is actually there is nominal growth and there is real growth so there's depends like growth can be very misleading you know you have an economy okay just to say oh an economy has been experiencing growth you know in what terms there's nominal terms you could look at an oil exporting you know, country that you know relies heavily on oil exports. You know, and all of a sudden you have an economic oil boom, and the price of a barrel of oil skyrockets, and then you have that country making you know a lot of money. All of a sudden, it doesn't necessarily mean. You're, you're, I think your question here is the human side of it, the better or worse for you know the average human being. But yeah, in it's terms of very complex. Words. I mean, it's 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 very complex. Who knows? I mean, if you're in a country that is that operates on the basis of inequality and indoctrination, you know, uh, the rule of, you know, one person or, you know, just, I don't think more money will, will mean anything, you know? I mean, it could just, it could be, I don't know, temporary silence, uh, you know, for- but the idea for, of like China's um, GDP, uh, GDP growth is slowing down. Like, is that really cause for alarm? Cause I think like, we're told these things as narratives and it's supposed to be scary or no i don't think it should be scary i mean like the economy the economy is is a cycle right so uh, there's the ups and downs and it's this it's it's natural it's normal so i don't think it's alarming now if people are if the average people if the average citizens if the average chinese citizens are experiencing a and all of a sudden, drastic decrease in their, you know, standard of overall standard of living, then yes, you would be alarmed, right? But just because you're temporarily going through an economic slowdown doesn't mean that you're necessarily alarmed per se. You could always, you know, you could always figure out the right strategies, economic uh, solutions to help your economy recover too. Well, basically, this book is about macroeconomics. She's a macroeconomist. Yes, that's her area of expertise. Uh, yeah, for the most part, it is. And uh, but it's it's actually a very interesting interesting literature because you know I like that twist. I like literature that you know can make you think about things that you've traditionally taken for granted as you know whatever right or wrong, and then you you have you all of a sudden have a completely different way of understanding them because you know I, I tend to be personally interested in behavioral economics and um, and that's exactly what behavioral economists do they try to challenge and um, 
you know, oftentimes discredit traditional, you know, economic perception so theory. Is, and I take into account psychological, emotional, and other factors into perspective. So I feel like maybe the author would also get along with a lot of behavioral economists. I'm not sure, but you know, you can ask her. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to. But so basically, it's behavioral economist, uh, economy, uh, econ economics. Oh my gosh, I can't speak. Behavioral, behavioral economics, behavioral economists. Mm -hmm. um, is it, for example, this the, what we brought up before about if you tax um, certain people a certain amount, it sort of like psychologically makes them invest in something, you know, is it that sort of idea? Sure, yeah. I mean, yeah. it can be. It can be because, you know, it's, it's a field. First of all, it's a relatively new uh, uh, field, subfield of economics, and um, but it's growing, and there's there's a lot of works in, in behavioral econ that uh, challenge, you know, the general uh, perceptions of traditional economic theory. You know, how we're we're always taught that um, people are rational, uh, people make rational choices, and you know, but that's <laughs> but that's what we're taught in traditional econ classes, right? Okay. I mean, the marginal analysis, yes, 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 and the marginal <laughs> analysis framework, where you know, people are rational choices, and you know they 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 make decisions based on a cost benefit analysis. But a lot of times, even this mere cost benefit analysis framework is flawed because, again, of you know miscalculations and and behavioral econ is basically a field that incorporates the psychological, as you said, emotional and other factors um, into that process of decision making. Thank you so much. This is really informative to me. I think I learned a lot. Well, thank you so much. Um, I really You're appreciate welcome. And um, yes, have a good day. <laughs> the Ignoramus's Guide to Surviving Humanity is available as a podcast on Spotify and Amazon Music. You can also like and subscribe to our videos on YouTube. And if you want to help us grow, then you can become a patron on Patreon. And that's it, right? I think that's, that's it. it. Yeah. <laughs>